Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. I'm looking at my commodity screen on my Bloomberg terminal. That would be GLCO for you terminal users out there. I see a lot of red across the screen concerns about global growth stoked by the coronavirus, certainly. But a couple of areas that really stand out on the positive side would be spot gold up 10.4% year to date. To get a sense of what's going on in the world of precious and base metals, we welcome Everett Millman, precious metal specialist at Gainesville Coins uh, based in Gainesville, Florida. But joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, uh, Everett, thanks so much for joining us here in our studio studio. Let's start with gold. Uh, you know, we were just talking about before going on air, and Lisa was pointing out the nice run gold has had. What's kind of your sense for what's really driving it, and kind of where can this thing go? Thanks, Paul. Uh, obviously, the coronavirus is having a major effect. It, you can't deny that the damage to global supply chains is layering on top of what was already a slowing global economy. People are fearful and gold is definitely absorbing that safe haven flight. We're seeing a lot of flight to quality and that means gold, treasuries, and the US dollar. But we still haven't had a lot of resolution in the trade war. I think that what's interesting about the impact of the coronavirus is that it's causing some pullback on the agreement, the phase one agreement that China and the U.S. came to, that China, because their economy is at a standstill, they really can't meet any of the uh, stipulations that they agreed to. They're not going to be able to increase their agricultural purchases. They're not going to be able to um, be that bedrock for the global economy right now. So I think that gold is the obvious place for investors to go when there is so much uncertainty still around this trade dispute that has gone on for many, many months before the coronavirus even broke out. So let's uh, dig a little bit deeper into some of the technicals here, because as you mentioned, uncertainty really is the prevailing word of the day. And I think, Paul, it's really interesting to see the size and scope for so many markets today is 2016, right as Brexit was really front and center and kind of driving a lot of market action. Another time of significant uncertainty. If you strip that away in today's moves, which are perhaps going to be portrayed as knee-jerk moves, mm -hmm. uh, moves uh, in, in hindsight, we shall see. What is the momentum in general for gold, you know, just generally given where we're at economically, given the fact that all things being equal, the U.S. and China have come to some sort of trade truce? Right. And I think that that positive momentum is undeniable. Uh, so it's I'll, still there even without this knee jerk reaction. Correct. And I think that there was a similar sort of dynamic uh, during the Iran crisis that Gold jumped right after the news, and everyone expected to see a sell-off following that, and we really didn't get it. We have climbed higher from that $1,500 range since then. Um, from a technical perspective, gold certainly appears to be overbought right now. Uh, the RSI is very high. It's well above its 50-day moving average and its 200-day moving average. So I think we could see some profit-taking. But the general narrative is still certainly in place that gold looks like it could test as high as 1750 in the coming months. And the, I guess the all-time high back in 2012 was 1770, so we're pretty close to that. I mean, I'm also looking at silver. Again, gold up about 10% year-to-date, silver only up about 5%. Is that underperformance for silver? Is that Should I take note of that at all? Sure. I mean, heretofore, silver has been lagging gold, partly because it relies so much on industrial demand. So everything with the coronavirus and the slowing of the Chinese economy has dragged silver lower. It's been much more sensitive to what's been going on with the base metals like copper. 
Uh, but it did take out its September high from last year. It's well above 1850, and I think that allows for some positive momentum for silver to play catch up with gold because the gold to silver ratio is still extremely elevated, and I would expect to see that correct, especially if there continues to be safe haven flight into the metals generally. All right, so you mentioned copper, and Dr. Copper usually is thought of as an economic gauge. Mm -hmm. uh, Where it goes, so too goes the economy. Interesting to see that it's not lower today, or it's not declining more. In this knee-jerk risk-off move, you can see uh, it's declining 1.3% materially behind oil, which is falling out of bed. Why the resilience? That's a bit surprising. I would expect copper to respond similarly uh, to oil. And we've seen this widening gold to copper ratio, which is usually not a, a very bullish sign for the broader economy. Um, I think that copper really has a lot of headwinds against it. Uh, I don't see it continuing to, to rally because um, the stockpiles in London are rather high right okay, now. I've heard a lot of people point to this gap between gold and copper. Can you walk us through why this is such an important metric that people watch? Sure, because as you said, Dr. Copper kind of is the bellwether for the commodities and manufacturing sector. And although we lump gold in with the other commodities, it has this unique monetary uh, property to it. And so comparing gold to copper is really looking at that divergence between what is going on in the real economy and manufacturing, and then what is the sentiment in financial markets. So when gold is higher, that obviously means that fear and uncertainty are usually high. Um, if copper is coming along with it, then that shows that manufacturing and, and mining are all expecting to see uh, the commodities complex rise along with it. And right now we're seeing the opposite of that. So that's why it's such a key indicator. So again, gold here up 1.84% uh, today, $16, uh, $1,673 an ounce. Are you sensing when you talk to your clients, speculation creeping into the market? Are people speculating on gold saying, boy, this thing's running, I got to get it, got to get into it? Um, more so now, yes. There's definitely a bit of bleed over of FOMO, um, like we saw in the equity market earlier this year. That's now kind of been transferred over to gold. But I think another reason that you're seeing sort of a speculative uh, fervor for gold is the expectation that central banks are going to continue to ease policy and step in when necessary. Um, those tools are going to be tested in 2020 for central banks, not just the Fed, but globally, as we've seen with the PBOC has also stepped in with more stimulus. So that is the narrative I'll be watching for the rest of the year. And I think it's going to cause quite a bit of volatility on top of that. Thank you so much, Everett Millman. Thank you so much for being with us. Appreciate Everett it. Millman, precious metals specialist at Gainesville Coins, joining us here in our interactive broker studios. On the one side of markets today, you have the spreading of the coronavirus and all of the fear of economic slowdown that uh, ensues from that. On the other side, you have political risk, political discussions going on as the Democratic uh, Convention looks toward South Carolina. Tuesday, the debates happen, uh, and we are getting a sense Bernie Sanders is the front runner that needs to be beaten for any of the other candidates to really emerge uh, in a competitive way. Joining us now, now is Chris Liu, former Deputy Secretary of Labor and Senior Fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. Also, uh, someone who has spent decades in public service working for the Obama administration and beyond. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for being with us. I want to just start with Bernie Sanders and his acceptance or lack thereof among the sort of more conventional Democratic Party. Are people starting to accept him more or are people really pushing back within the Democratic Party on his nomination? 
Well, I think you see both, but I would also caution people. Look, we've had three states that have voted, three relatively small states. And yes, uh, Senator Sanders has a huge amount of momentum right now, especially as early voting goes on for Super Tuesday, which is next Tuesday. Uh, but we've got a long way to go. You know, as I always point out to people, more delegates are going to be allocated April, May and June uh, than on Super Tuesday next week. And so, I, look, I think this is still a pretty fluid race. And as we saw uh, from last week's debate, um, you know, things can still change. So, Chris, there's actually some growing concern that we've heard just recently that uh, with Bernie Sanders in the lead, that were he to be the nominee, he would actually cause perhaps you know, the Democrats to lose seats in Congress. Is that a yeah. valid concern? It is. Look, I, yeah, and I think this is a concern for, I think, all all when you look at any of the candidates, it's not how well you do in terms of winning the White House. And I and I'm uh, I am confident that any of them has a pretty decent chance of beating Donald Trump, but it's what you do down ballot. I think part of the challenge is, and what we don't know is, what's the theory of the case? Is the theory of the case uh, the Democrats need a nominee that tax to the center to try to pick some pick up some independents and never Trump Trumpers, or is the theory of the case to expand the electorate and can somebody like a a, a, a Bernie Sanders bring in young voters, people of color, a lot of the people that voted for Barack Obama in 2008 but sat out in 2016. Chris, you said uh, you think that any of the candidates uh, have a good chance of beating President Trump. Do you think Mm -hmm. that there is too much uh, being made that Senator Sanders has a terrible chance or the worst chance against President Trump of all of the candidates? (laughs) You know, look, I mean, if you base it simply on uh, on a polls right now, you would be hard-pressed to say that Sanders is any less electable than any of the other candidates. In fact, he polls quite well. I would also caution people, I think those head-to-head matchups are a little misleading this early. Uh, You really have to look down at the battleground states, and we are a long way. I mean, once this this nomination battle gets settled, no matter who it is, how well does the party come together? What does the convention look like? And then a lot of this, frankly, is about money. And I think what's people should be impressed by if you on Democrats, if you're concerned about Sanders, is his ability to raise money without holding fundraisers is actually pretty extraordinary. So, Chris, we've heard some discussion kind of ramping up recently about a brokered convention. Can you define what a brokered convention is and how it might play out this time around? Well, and I have a special perspective on this. I'm a DNC superdelegate as well. So at some point in the process, I will get a stay on the nominee. Uh, so essentially what it means is that if no one can get a majority of the delegates on the first ballot, um, and then by the time you get to the second ballot, uh, we should say on the first ballot, you are pledged to vote for the candidate who, you know, who you supported. Uh, by the second ballot, um, you know, candidates can cut deals with other ones. They can release their delegates. Superdelegates don't get a chance to vote until the second ballot. Um, and again, I, I don't want to get go down that road because I'm still not sure we're going to get there right now. Uh, but you could basically have, you know, multiple uh, voting where, you know, different candidates drop out and uh, you have different coalitions forming. I don't think we've had one since like 1952 or so. There's a huge risk here. I mean, this is what happened with Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders the last time around in 2016. A lot of people felt like the establishment, uh, to use President Trump's word, really hijacked Bernie Sanders' campaign and that, you know, there's a risk that there's going to be a repeat of that. I mean, how worried are you uh, that that is sort of going to be the impression? Yeah, you know, and this is part of why, you know, as a DNC superdelegate, I'm not endorsing anybody. I'm not I, I look, I, my view is we're, we're Democrats. Let de- Democrats believe everyone should vote. Let's let everyone and all 
50 states and the, you know, the seven territories vote, and then let's see what happens after that. Um, it's because I think there, there's a concern that if you try to put your thumb on the scale too much, either for or against Bernie Sanders, that just, you know, upsets, you know, people on one side. You know, we've only, we're three uh, states into this. Let's let the other, you know, 50-some uh, go ahead and vote first. Chris, is there a sense within the Democratic um, power structure, if you will, the party, uh, the, the National Committee, who actually is the best candidate against President Trump? Well, and that's hard. You know, for most of last year, we thought it was uh, Joe Biden. And, you know, he still polls pretty well. But obviously, you know, we've seen, you know, with Mayor Bloomberg coming up. And, you know, it, what's interesting, however, is that when you look at the public opinion polls, uh, President Trump basically gets about 44, 45 percent against every Democrat. Uh, and remind, a reminder, he got 46% against Hillary Clinton. So he basically is hitting where his ceiling is right now. So from my perspective as a Democratic strategist, um, the key is that there not be a third-party candidate and that the Democrats come in relatively united. And I think that's possible even after what happened in 2016, which was pretty contentious on the Democratic side. You largely had people you know, in the Sanders camp sort of fold back together uh, and vote for Hillary Clinton. So uh, in Tuesday's debate, tomorrow's debate, we are going to see the second performance from Michael Bloomberg, who is the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the owner of this radio station. Uh, You should get that in there. Also, Tom Steyer, another billionaire, is going to be on the stage there. And I'm wondering, what would you like to see? How much would you like to see the field contract in order to create momentum behind one candidate in the near term? Yeah, and I would like to see the field contract. And I think that's the important thing. And yeah, I take nothing away from Senator Sanders' performance in Nevada. He did incredibly well, far exceeded expectations. But there's still, you know, well over, let's say, 60% of people uh, in the Democratic uh, primary or caucus in Nevada who voted for somebody else. And I just don't think we have a great sense of who is really the person that can capture the broadest coalition until we see the field shrink down. The problem is you've got, you know, candidates who can self-fund. Uh, who don't answer to party establishment, or you've got candidates uh, who can largely raise money through small dollars who don't answer to party uh, officials as well. So it is kind of the Wild West, and this is just the way we are right now in politics. Hey, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate uh, your thoughts. Chris Liu, senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center, former deputy secretary of labor under President Obama, uh, joining us on the phone. The sentiment this morning very much being driven by a spread of the coronavirus outside of China, where the number of cases appears to be stabilizing to some degree. Uh, however, the focus very much turning to Italy, where a number of towns are seeing the cases rise exponentially. Joining us now from Milan is Fernando uh, Fernando Giuliano. He's an editor for Bloomberg Opinion. And uh, Fernando, we're really glad to have you to give us a sense of what is actually happening on the ground, how significant and prevailing is the threat and the fear of the coronavirus there? Well, it is real. I mean, uh, remember, there are now around 50,000 people uh, in lockdown in southern Lombardy. That's just south of Milan. Uh, That's the area where uh, the first cases were registered. And actually, you cannot get out or come into the area. Once you're in, you can't get out. Uh, now there is a, a other other regions, uh, quite a, you know, basically the whole of northern Italy. So regions like Veneto or Lombardy, where there have been uh, cases, uh, are not in lockdown, but uh, schools are closed. They're cancelling 
major events, uh, social events like the carnival or you know the football matches um, were were also cancelled. And a lot of people are working from home. Uh, lots of companies are encouraging people to you know do smart work from home. Uh, then it really depends. Some people kind of wander around and go for a walk and are not particularly bothered. Uh, others are terrified and uh, stay at home and uh, don't want to get out. So it's uh, uh, it's really that it's very very uncertain. People don't really know how much uh, to fear, what to fear exactly, and uh, it's also not clear what the you know how what are the consequences of this virus. Uh, some people have already already died in Italy. Six people. They were all uh, quite old, and some had previous conditions. Uh, but, you know, it's still, you know, what, what's happening in China is pretty terrifying and for everyone to see. So um, clearly a lot of people are very mindful of what's happening. So, Fernando, is there a sense of how it got to Italy? Oh, no, that's the, possibly the most frightening uh, part of it all. Um, we had uh, a few cases uh, in towards the end of last week, mid last week, in, uh, in these two areas, in Veneto and in uh, uh, Lombardy. But it's not quite clear how... Uh, it got. It's not that there was like a, an obvious connection to China, and it's not even clear how these two uh, separate areas of the country, which are close but not so close, uh, both became infected uh, at the same time. Uh, so the authorities are still scrambling to un- to find these uh, patient zero, as they call it. Yeah. Uh, but at the moment, no success. Fernando, it's interesting to see right now the reaction in the bond and stock markets in Italy, suffering some of the biggest moves since uh, 2016 and their borrowing costs jumping. I'm just wondering, can you speak to the fundamental picture of the Italian government? How uh, how much do they have to withstand a potential disruption in financial markets from a financial perspective? Well, look, I think uh, in terms of government bonds, uh, yes, they spiked this morning, but the 10 years uh, bonds for Italy are still below 1%. So one needs to keep some perspective. You know, this is a country which has been uh, seeing, you know, bond yields at 10 year, for 10 years at 6 7% during the Eurozone crisis. Fair These point. are still very, very low level. And uh, also equity levels, you know, were pretty high anyway. But, you know, that, that, the, the, the real worries over the real economy. You know, you have uh, some of the most... Uh, uh, richest and most industrialized parts of Italy, which are now in virtual lockdown, uh, you know, the consequences for uh, supply uh, are going to be big and same with demand. And the tourist industry is bound to suffer as well as people cancel their uh, holidays. Uh, so I think the, the government is looking at uh, putting together a package of economic help uh, for, uh, you know, the affected industry. But, you know, the, the impact is going to be very severe. So, Fernando, is there a sense that from a health perspective that the government is doing everything it needs to do, what's kind of the feeling on the ground? Well, you know, there are questions whether, you know, the, the initial outbreak could have been prevented or not. Uh, there are lots of theories going around. Some people say that this flight ban, which uh, the Italian government alone, or, you know, was one of very few countries in Europe to implement, may have actually worsen the situation because it made it harder for people to, uh, you know, for the authorities to keep track of people coming from China. This was a flight ban from China. Um, um, but at the same time, you know, now the response has been very forceful. Uh, there are some people who fear it's a little bit exaggerated or uh, too little too late. Uh, but actually, you know, if you talk to many experts, uh, they're being very complimentary of these very tough measures, draconian measures, which are being implemented and say it's exactly what, what needs to happen. 
Um, as I say, you know, it's all very uncertain, so we don't know. But, you know, certainly uh, the measures are being, you know, implemented in a very forceful manner at the moment. Fernando, just real quickly here, you are currently in Naples. Your wife is in Milan. When is the next time you guys will be able to travel to see each other? Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of looking at the news myself uh, on a daily basis to understand, uh, you know, when, I, when I'm going to move back. Um, you know, one thing is, sure, is certain, I'm going to travel by car this time rather than taking a train because, you know, the trains are not too, uh, you know, are not exactly the kind of place where you want to be right now, whereas, you know, at least your own car is just you. So uh, I don't think, you know, one, uh, one should exaggerate what's going on. We're going to see each right. other very soon. Uh, but, you know, I'm going to be mindful of how I get there. Right. All right, Fernando, you be safe, okay, and your wife as well. Fernando Giuliano, editor of Bloomberg Opinion uh, in Naples, uh, uh, Italy right now. Talk, give us the latest on the coronavirus uh, there, which has you know, really kind of changed the tone of uh, the market's perception of this virus as it now is firmly entrenched on the European continent uh, in northern Italy. European stocks had their worst day since 2016. In the U.S., you had all major U.S. indices starting to open uh, down more than 3%. Over in China, however, the share price has been muted, actually, uh, with declines that are much smaller than what we're seeing over in Europe and here in the U.S. Joining us now to talk about what to expect going forward, Brendan Ahern, Chief Investment Officer at Crane Shares, based in New York, focused on China stocks in particular. And I'm wondering, Brendan, from your perspective, is what we're seeing in Chinese equities just a big bet that the People's Bank of China will come in with any kind of stimulus to stave off steeper declines? Well, I, I think that's certainly a factor, Lisa. You also have uh, not just the PBOC, but you have fiscal policy, you have stimulus uh, from the Ministry of Transportation. You know, you have really a consensus to offset the weakness we're going to have in Q1. We're going to make it up in Q2, Q3, and Q4. So, Brendan, that scenario suggests that the market's discounting that this thing is at or near peaking in terms of uh, severity. Is there any real evidence to back that up? In China, Paul, the cases appear to have plateaued. And that, that was the bottom that we saw back with SARS going back to uh, you know, almost 20 years ago. So, so the market is forward-looking, is saying the actual cases have plateaued, and China is going back to work in a very significant fashion. Therefore, you're starting to see a pickup in some of the high-frequency economic data. And that's part of the reason you're seeing the markets respond in a positive fashion. Um, what's important, though, th this is mainland China. Uh, if your definition of China is Hong Kong or stocks or U.S. listed Chinese companies, those are predominantly owned by foreign investors. They, they're selling. But, but the actual mainland Chinese investors are buying an, an important uh, disparity. Yeah, looking at the at the Hang Seng Index in Hong Kong, uh, which was down 1.8% overnight, which was much more than the Shanghai Stock Exchange Composite, for example, which was down just about three-tenths of a percent. That said, I mean, you, you talked about SARS. It is a very different period of time than SARS, and this is a very different illness than SARS, given how contagious it is. I'm wondering, as an investor in Chinese equities, how worried are you? you that as uh, people within China start going back to work, start going to the factories, we get a reemergence of the coronavirus and it causes a much longer term disruption. Well, the Hubei Providence 
um, where the city of Wuhan is located, is, is disproportionately a very large percentage of the cases in China. That remains in quarantine. So, so I think that the view is other parts of the country have not had very significant levels of of this infectious disease, and therefore it's time it's time to go back to work. You know that they've kind of quarantined and contained, uh, but the rest of the country it's time to get back to work. So, Brendan, give us a sense of um, how much of the country in production is shut down. We've heard numbers as high as maybe forty or fifty percent. What do you think that is uh, at the moment? It's coming back, Paul. Um, that that certainly the Hubei province itself, uh, big producer of fish, shrimp, crabs, auto parts, textiles, cement, but but less than five percent of China's aggregate GDP. So, so so you you have companies that are within the uh, supply chains within Hubei, but but it's not it's not a massive amount. Aggregate. Uh, utilization is picking up. So I, I would agree, you know, probably about half to 60% is, is coming back online. Um, and it's coming in, incrementally, week by week, or, you know, we're going to see an improvement. So, Brendan, given the fact that you seem optimistic about a stabilization here and a ramping up of business uh, within China, are you buying? So on, on a personal basis, I am. Uh, I'll be buying uh, today. Um, I, I don't think you can plant the flag and say this is the bottom, but I think there's opportunities over the next several weeks. Remember, this Friday we have China PMI numbers for the month of February, and, and we kind of know they're going to be a disaster. Uh, so, so I think the headlines around Friday uh, could weigh on the markets a little bit, but we know it's going to be bad. And that's why I'm, I'm not saying that this is the bottom. Right. But over the next several weeks, I think there is a great opportunity. But what are you buying? So I eat my own cooking, so I am a big investor in, in our Crane Shares ETFs. I love today our uh, MSCI China A ETF KBA. Um, U.S. investors have sold it down almost 3% below what it's worth. Um, literally, it, it's, it's, it's trading down. Um, I think mainland markets will be up tomorrow, so I'm going to be a buyer of our KBA. Um, and then I love our, uh, obviously, uh, our internet strategy around e broader EM, uh, KWeb and KEMQ are other big holdings of mine, and I love those funds as well. I mean, these are like my kids, <laughs> but, but I, uh, I'm heavily invested in, in the Crane Shares ETFs, and I think as a long-term investor, I think this is a, you know, you know, when people puke things up, they give it away for free. You know, as a long-term investor, why would I not buy? Are you seeing other buying activity from U.S. investors? You know, the, the data looks like that you're seeing selling from U.S. investors. Uh, I mean, we were in a massive risk-off day, so it's not, it's not just China. It's EM. Right. Um, you know, and anything that's beta is, is down. Uh, I think the important disparity is what we're seeing from data from what mainland investors are doing. They're buying mainland Chinese equities. They're actually buying Hong Kong stocks. Um, and I just think China's maybe a little bit more forward along in this unfortunate ep- epidemic. Yep. Um, but in aggregate, you know, this, this, these numbers uh, are very, very low. I mean, uh, my guess is more people were killed in car crashes over the last, last right. 24 hours than corona yep. in, you know, in aggregate. Got it. Brennan Ahern, thanks so much for joining us. Brennan's the chief investment officer for Crane Shares based in New York City. Uh, lots of experience investing in China. He is buying today, uh, buying the dip. I'm just looking at you know kind of one of the names that gets bandied about as a play on China, which is Alibaba. The stock is down 3.2% uh, today. This is Bloomberg.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.